What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Ranger Rendezvous podcast. Thank you all so much for joining us. And if you haven't listened to the last two episodes, we highly encourage you to go back and take a listen to those two episodes. This podcast was started out as a source of education and gearing you towards a mindset of preparedness for your upcoming trek at Philmont. And we're really looking forward to continuing to share the information that was accrued through our own experiences out at the ranch. So thank you so much for tuning in. Today I'm joined with Harrison Evans to talk a little bit about the Philmont backcountry and what you can kind of expect when you're getting ready to go out on your trek. Harrison, what's going on? Hey, Will. How's it going? Going good, man. Going good. So let's talk backcountry. What can we tell folks to expect from the Philmont backcountry? My understanding is that when people go to Philmont, they have two conceptions in mind. They think of New Mexico and they think of tall mountains, arid climate, trees everywhere. Or on the flip side, they think of a hot, desolate desert. Has that been your experience? Yes. In fact, I remember, you know, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a forest. It's a city covered in trees. And I visited New Mexico a fair amount as a child because I had family there, but they lived closer to Santa Fe. And so my personal conception and what I imagine is the general conception of what New Mexico looks like is deserts, Breaking Bad, mostly stuff that would be further south than where you actually end up when you go to Philmont. So it it is a surprise for a lot of folks that Philmont is not the desert of southern New Mexico. Yeah, it definitely takes a lot of people off guard. And I think what what takes people even more off guard when they do arrive at Philmont is the infrastructure that's already there. People think of Philmont, I think people think of an austere environment where you're, you're Bear grills, you're out in the wilderness all by yourself with no help for miles. And that's not at all true. For number one, the base camp itself, camping headquarters, catches everybody off guard because it, it almost looks like its own little metropolitan area. And even more so when you get out into the backcountry, you have all of these camps that are operated by staff members, you have commissaries for food, and then you have your your trail camps, which is then you're camping on your own. But let's dive right in, because I think that that, this is something that will definitely pique a lot of people's interests. You got anything on camps and commissaries that we can learn about? Yeah, so as Will mentioned, there are three different types, really. And you can kind of more or less divide it into two different types. You got trail camps, and then you got staffed camps. And in the staffed camps, you also have commissaries. So trail camps are what you would normally expect going to any national, sometimes state parks. These are the sorts of camps that you might find when you reserve a site at a national park. They have designated campsites. In fact, all Philmont camps have designated campsites. They've got a little bit of infrastructure. We're talking latrines known as red roof ends, bear lines, sumps, fire rings, However, there are no staff there. Then you have the staff camps. And the staffed camps have staff that are living at the camp. There are commissaries. So commissaries are where you're going to be picking up food. No crews will be sleeping at the commissaries. And then you have your other staff camps. Staff live at the staff camps. It is their home. And when you go there, you are essentially visiting their home. And so there's a degree of etiquette that is expected of any crew that is entering a staff camp. Yeah. To expand a little bit on that point that you mentioned there, the staff may not necessarily live in those particular cabins. In fact, I think for most camps, there's only one staff member that lives inside of that cabin, and that is the camping director for that particular camp. So everybody else, all of the other staff members that are staffing at that camp will be living in tents near around the cabin. 
And Harrison makes a really good point that it is their home. While you may be passing through there as a crew for a day or two day period, the staff lives out of this camp, out of this particular cabin for the better part of three months. They eat there and they house all of their gear there. Their food is typically stored in there. It is their home. And it's also the base of operations for everything that that camp does. The reason why I mentioned that it is an operational hub is that you have limited amount of electricity in there. You'll hear a radio going on inside. That is their line of communication to and from camping headquarters. Just some funny, goofy stories that I have of crews that'll be hiking through the backcountry all day long. You'll have crew members and crew advisors that'll be taking pictures on their phone and they drain their phone battery on a day and they get to that camp. Well, they're looking for a charging port the moment that they hear a radio powered by electricity inside the cabin. We have to keep in mind that these cabins were built as early as 1960. We have a few newer infrastructures, but for the most part, these cabins are relatively old. So just to point out that a cabin like this is not your charging station. They have limited supplies and resources at their disposal that they themselves are using to live out of. So like Harrison mentioned, you're visiting their home when you're going to a staff camp. So maintain a little bit of etiquette when you're there. And this isn't a problem for, for hardly anybody. The programs that they offer there are wide-ranging. As Harrison mentioned, you'll have programs from all over the place, and that is dictated by the program setup. They could either be a challenge camp or they could be a historical interpretation camp. The historical interp camps portray a historical period of Philmont ranging anywhere from the early days of the settlers in the early 19th century all the way up to present day when Waitfield, or excuse me, I should say modern day, when Wade Phillips purchased the Philmont Ranch and was utilizing it as a cattle ranch. You'll get to take a trip in time to various periods throughout history, and it's really cool because you get to see staffers portraying the parts of the periods that they're representing. Yeah, in addition, you've got more programs like shooting, whether that's bow or firearm. You've got search and rescue, where they show you how to use ropes and weight systems to, to efficiently pull weight. Challenge camps, as Will mentioned. Fishing, biking, astronomy, atlatl, in fact, at one of the camps. And then on top of all of that, you have some really awesome opportunities to see some historical locations. So we have a couple mines on the ranch that you can visit. You've got Wade Phillips's hunting cabin that you can visit. There's a lot of really cool things going on in the backcountry. I think it's probably one of the biggest things that differentiates Philmont from your average national park or location to go backpacking is that when you're done backpacking for the day, you're not just, and, and there's nothing wrong with taking in the sights and enjoying nature, but you've got something on top of that. You've got activities to do at the end of the day, and they're a lot of fun. Agreed. I would make the argument that going on a trek to Philmont is just as much an experience in the outdoor, rugged environment as it is akin to visiting a theme park. And a Philmont does get a lot of criticism for that because some believe that there's an oversaturation of program. Well, if programming isn't your thing, then you have a wide array of itineraries to pick from where you're doing, as Harrison mentioned, you're going out into the backcountry to just experience nature. And program is a minimal concern for you. However, for crews that are either young, not as experienced in hiking, or they are experienced, but they want to get that program element in their trek, then they have the ability to choose itineraries that direct them to these kinds of camps. And again, as Harrison mentioned, there is a wide variety of program to choose from when you're planning your itinerary. So if you have an interest in visiting all of the historical camps or as many as you can in the backcountry, then you have the ability to do that. 
If history is your thing, then I highly recommend choosing an itinerary that gets you into those historical interp camps. But if you want more of a challenge course, if you want mountain biking, if you want search and rescue, if you want to build upon hard skills, then you have the ability to choose camps such as Sealy Canyon, such as Carson Meadows for search and rescue. So there's a wide variety of options to choose from when you're visiting these camps in terms of program. It's also worth mentioning that commissaries aren't the only location that you will be picking up food. There are several staff camps where they have food pickups, but commissaries are the largest locations for picking up food, and you will hit at least one commissary throughout your trek. Some of the staff camps where you might find a food pickup, it's not all of them. You're not going to be picking up food at every single stop along the way. Places like Apache Springs, Baldy Town Bridge Cabins, Miners Park, Those places have minimal food pickups, usually for a single itinerary, maybe a couple itineraries max. But commissaries are really purpose-built for food pickups for the bulk of itineraries passing through them. That's what they're meant for, whereas staff camps service only a couple itineraries. So you may have a pickup, maybe two max at staff camps, whereas most of your food will be coming from commissaries. Yeah, if you go back to the previous episode where Harrison and Matt are talking about food pickup, you will be acquiring food in a similar way in which you acquired food on that first day. So we highly encourage you to go back and listen to that second episode. They mention a key detail that the food that you pick up there typically will be in a larger quantity than the food of which you'll be you'll be picking up while you're out in the backcountry during certain periods during your trek. However, food pickup on that first day in base camp gets you a pretty good idea of the food that you'll be picking up in the backcountry as you're visiting these commissaries. So when we talk about visiting staff camps, a popular misconception that a lot of crews have when they're out in the backcountry is that Every individual that they see wearing a Philmont staff polo. In the last several years, they've been green. Philmont has been known to change colors. However, as of 2021, the current staff shirt color is green. So with that in mind, they have the idea that their ranger wears a green polo. So everybody that wears a green polo out at Philmont is a ranger. There's a popular saying among the staff that not all green shirts are rangers. And we say that in a positive light because... While the ranger serves as the guiding element to the crew, they're the most involved interpersonally with the crew members, every staffer plays a critical role in the overall experience of the crew. So the rangers are the guides, but you also have other individuals as well, such as the camping headquarters staff, which serves in an administrative role. Logistics, your trip planners, they serve in ranch operations. They are also the hub that operates all search and rescue operations out of the backcountry. They work really closely with infirmary. Noting on infirmary, they are your medical staff out on the ranch. You'll have a lot of interaction with these two individual groups on your first day in base camp, as is mentioned in the previous episode in this podcast. You also have dining hall staffers, which are your food services individuals. To the time traders, they function as the retail arm of Philmont Scout Ranch. You also have backcountry staff, which we talked about extensively just now. You have conservation, which is the Environmental Preservation and Conservation Department of Philmont Scout Ranch. They also have a lot of special treks that operate through them as well. Just to mention that only for the note that sometimes you will see special treks out on the property, such as Order the Air Trail Crew, regular trail crew, where they will be staffed by foremen, which are conservation staffers, but they're functioning as guides for that particular trek. You have security, which operates as the lost and found hub, 
the security for not only Basecamp, but the larger perspective of Philmont as a whole. You have activities which host your opening and closing campfire. You'll have interaction with these individuals in the beginning of your experience and at the very end. Chaplains, which serve not only as the, the religious arm for the ranch and hosting chapel services, of which you can earn your duty to God patch, but also they function as conflict control, conflict management in crew and team dynamics within your own crews, should there be a problem. And you also have your Wranglers, which are separate from the program element of Philmont, however, operate in a ranching capacity as your cowboys and cowgirls. They also operate cavalcade tracks. You'll see these individuals out typically disassociated with the program element of the ranch, except for those particular treks that I mentioned. So to wrap that point up, while your ranger wears a green staff polo, not every individual that you see wearing a polo is considered a ranger, and that is not a bad thing at all. Like I mentioned, they all play a critical role in the overall experience of your time out at Philmont. So now that you're out in the bad country, you might be curious, what's the weather going to be like? You know, we mentioned the perception that Philmont's a desert. Fact of the matter is, Philmont gets a quite a bit of rain, usually. There's really two sort of mini seasons within the Philmont summer. We've got the beginning of the summer, probably May to June time frame, when you're going to experience a little bit of drier weather. That's not to say it won't rain. I can almost guarantee that it'll rain on your trek at some point. There have been treks when it hasn't rained, and those treks likely occurred in the May to June time frame. But bringing a rain jacket is still a good idea. Nighttime, temperatures can sometimes drop pretty low, and this is true pretty much throughout the summer, but it's important to mention that even during the drier time frame, temperatures can drop below 40 degrees. And if you get really high, they can drop below freezing. Up on Mount Phillips, it's known to snow, hail during any month of the summer. Once you get to the late June period, we begin what we call our monsoon season. This lasts generally between late June, July, sometimes squeaks by into August a little bit. You have showers beginning approximately around 12 to 1 in the North Country and 1 to 2 in the South Country. This is almost like clockwork. I've definitely used it to my advantage before with crews. I've made myself look like a magical wizard of rain. I was able to predict the showers, but the fact of the matter is it happens at the same time every day. So if your ranger tells you, yeah, there's probably going to be some rain in about an hour or two, it's because they know there's going to be rain in about an hour or two. If you come in the late June, July period, expect some rain. The last period that might be worth mentioning is August. A lot of scouts are going to be entering school in August, especially in the south of the United States. So generally speaking, you get way fewer crews in August. But if you do go in August... The weather patterns start to return to normal. It begins to cool off a little bit, starting to become more fall-like. Uh, you can expect pretty similar rains to the monsoon season. It's kind of the tapering end of the monsoon season, but not as consistent. Yeah, if you're craving to get out to Philmont in a different season other than the summer, but you're unable to or you want to get a taste of what it's like, choosing to go in August is a really cool time. I personally have never worked out at Philmont during the fall. However, Harrison has. From my understanding, working out at Philmont or being out at Philmont in the fall is one of the most beautiful periods of the year to be out at the ranch. You'll begin to see sites that crews that came before you would not see, such as sunflowers, a funny little thing that I heard in town in Cimarron from someone mentioned that when sunflowers come into bloom around the end of the first week to second week of August, 
it's a bittersweet feeling to everybody because that is almost the signal to which everybody's beginning to go home for school or for the off season. If you're arriving at film on at the tail end and you see sunflowers, it's often a really cool little thing. You know that you're going to be one of the last crews to be out there for that season. And in addition to that, there's going to be nobody out of the backcountry. So that's a really cool thing to have a part in because not many crews get to have that. To touch base a little bit on what Harrison mentioned regarding the temperatures in the beginning of the summer, he is correct that nighttime for most areas of film, particularly at elevations of around 9,000 feet and above, you're going to have nights where the temperature will drop into the 40s and possibly even to freezing. To share a brief story, I had a group of staffers that I was delivering training to during my time as service academy coordinator. We were up at Black Mountain Camp, elevation of around around eight, 9,000 feet. In Black Mountain, you're in more of the mountainous regions that you would expect, such as Mount Phillips, Black Mountain, adjacent to the actual camp. During the night, it dropped below freezing at 30 degrees. You wake up the next morning, and one of the staffers that I was training had a little bit of skin peeled off of his cheek because the weather got so cold that his face practically froze to the tent floor that he was sleeping in. And when he woke up, he had to slowly pry his cheek off of the floor of the mat. So it does get real, and which is another reason why we highly encourage you to bring sleeping bags that are weathered to 20-degree sleeping bags. There's no real reason for you to bring anything lower than that, but that's just one of the reasons why a 20-degree bag is recommended for coming out to Philmont, especially if you're coming out in the May to June time frame. Likewise, for monsoon season, do not neglect to bring your rain gear for that season. Don't neglect to bring your rain gear for any period of the season that you're out of film on, because it will rain on you. But especially for that time frame, we highly encourage, and it's it's not even encouraged, it's enforced that you bring rain gear, especially if you're going to be out in the June to July time frame. So we touched a little briefly on weather patterns in specific regions, like I was mentioning before, in the mountainous regions. You get a lot of different weather than you do in other flatland regions. You have three distinct geographical regions out at Philmont. You have the North Country, you have the South Country, you have an, a region that's called Central, which really is a mix between North and South. You also have the Via Vidal, which is the northernmost portion of Philmont that you are allowed to hike on. The North Country, which is your Ponial region, Baldy, that region gets very dry, hot, and you're also at higher elevation of around 8,000 feet and above. Central country, which is the middle of the ranch, is often very hot, arid as well. However, it experiences a lot more varying weather patterns, depending on the time of year that you're there. Also to note about central country is where we had the now infamous 33,000-acre Ute Park wildfire. In 2018, Harrison and I both were working out there during that time. It burned 30,000 acres of program property out at Philmont, forced us to shut down for the season, it's known as the black, and you'll hear a lot of staffers refer to it as such. The burn scar, as others would refer to. That region, to my knowledge, is mostly impassable. There is discussion about opening up particular trails that cut through the black, primarily around the perimeter of the burn scar. But for the most part, the majority of the burn scar is non-traversable. So unless revealed to you by your logistics trip planning instructor, or your ranger, or any film on staffer for that matter, the black or the burn scar is off limits. South Country is a different environment entirely. You have dense vegetation, it's very wet, and your elevation any can range anywhere from around 7,000 to around 9,000 feet. This area is very popular for crews that are less experienced backpackers. In terms of itinerary start, that is where most crews will start out. 
And then you have the Via Vidal unit. The Via Vidal unit is composed of a couple different properties and entities that own that region. It's not owned by Philmont. However, we have two existing agreements with two entities that allow us to utilize the Via Vidal unit. The U.S. Forest Service and the properties owned by Ted Turner. Crews traverse through there. The highest point of which you can reach in the Via Vidal unit is at near 13,000 feet. I believe it's 12,800 something feet. That is the point called Little Castilla. The Vividal unit almost doubles the ranch's size. So it's really cool to get out there. It's very flat, no trails, all low-impact camping. So if you're really looking for an aggressive opportunity for you and your crew to get out and really experience what life was like out on the frontier, the Vividal unit is the location for you. So those are the three regions out of Philmont. We'll certainly be getting into trek preparations in a future episode, but just as we're speaking about the Valle, I'd say that's one of the sections that if you're hiking through there, unlike hiking anywhere else on Philmont, you're probably going to want to do some orienteering prep because without the trails, you're depending entirely on your skills to get through there. And it's possible and happens every summer that crews get lost in the Valle. It is flatter, but like Will said, it can get up. Like, Little Castilla is a tall mountain, so it's not for the faint fart. It's very pretty. I'd recommend checking it out. The Vividal is one of my favorite locations to visit out at the ranch. If you are a big fan of westerns, the Vividal unit is used for a ton of filming locations. You'll recognize in films such as True Grit, Lonesome Dove, if you're into Western classics, locations that are present in those in, in scenes in those films. So it's really cool if you're if you really want to just get out and enjoy the wide open frontier. The Vividal is the location for you. Harrison's going to dive in a little bit to water sources that you'll find out at these locations because they do vary widely between all the regions. So the main water sources that you're going to run into is streams, spigots, and water buffaloes. Now, streams are always unpurified. We have no purified streams at Philmont. Spigots can be purified, but there are unpurified spigots. And then water buffaloes, again, are usually purified, but there can be unpurified water buffaloes. So streams, I'm sure you understand what that is. Mountain streams, any sort of running water that is heading out towards the oceans, coming from the tops of our mountains, those are your streams. Spigots? Those can be located. There is at least one that I'm thinking of off the top of my head that is located in a trail camp, but the vast majority of them are located in staff camps. Their purification levels are usually indicated somewhere in the staff camp, but if you have a question about whether a spigot is purified or not, please make sure you verify that with a staff member before drinking the spigot water without purifying it. The last that I mentioned, and one that you might not be familiar with, is something called a water buffalo. Other than the animal that resides in Africa, a water buffalo is a trailer with a large water tank attached on top of it, and it is hauled out to various locations where water is a little more scarce. Now, one thing that's really important to note with water buffaloes is that there are water buffaloes designated as a water source for a particular project that are off-limits to crews. 
So if there's a conservation team that's working a specific location, they might have hauled out a water buffalo with the expectation of using that to complete their project. And if a bunch of crews came through and took all of that water and then the staff got there and there was no water, it can really jeopardize their health and safety as well as the project. So whenever using a water buffalo, make sure that that water buffalo is indicated as being available for crew use. Yeah, to touch on that, your trip planning meeting, which you have in the beginning of your time at Philmont when you're at camping headquarters, the logistics trip planner will go over their most recent knowledge of the water sources available to you. They will mention, or at least they will make an effort to mention, any of the water sources that are off limits, such as what Harrison was mentioning regarding certain water buffaloes that are brought out for staff use or for program use other than your trek. Pay attention to that when they're mentioning that in that meeting. For streams and spigots, Harrison mentioned purification. If you come across a spigot that was mentioned by Harrison earlier that it's questionable whether or not uh, it's purified or not, even if there are no staff around, the safest assumption to make is that it's a non-purified source. So go ahead and purify that water, even if you're 99% certain that that water is safe to drink. So it's really important to take into account the, the pure the purification status of your water and listening to your logistics strip planners to help reveal to you what sources of water are safe to pull from and which ones you should avoid when you're out in the backcountry. And you won't come across this all the time. Your ranger will go over this with even more detail when you're getting out prepared for your trek, your day one when you arrive on the trail. However, it is an important concept to have in the back of your mind as you're getting ready to travel out at Philmont. Under no circumstance will you be out anywhere in the backcountry where you will have no access to water. You might have periods in which you're traveling between point A and point B in which there will be no water, but at every location that you're going to be camping at, every location that you will have a planned stop, there will be a water source there for you, whether it be a stream, a spigot, or a water buffalo. One final thing to touch on regarding water sources are wells, which tie into spigots. Uh, how you'll find more of these as you get further north where cattle is more concentrated. However, there are wells out in the backcountry which are primarily used as water troughs for the cattle, for the livestock. Uh, but especially there, when you're pulling water from those sources, please purify it. The last thing that you want is to have Giardia throughout the rest of your track. So those are the three water sources that Harrison mentioned, which... I would I would highly encourage you to pay extreme attention to in the preparation lead up to your trek. When you're out in the backcountry, there's two different pieces of infrastructure that you could travel on, trails or roads. In general, the rule goes that trails, you hike them, roads, you don't. Trails are really designed for crews. We aim for 2 to 3% grade on those trails. Maybe some of the older trails go closer to 5, possibly even 6%, depending on when the trail was created. But the newer trails are built to be 2 to 3% grade. I'll say I've hiked all over the country. I don't know of a single location that has better maintained trails, better built trails than Philmont. The one thing I will mention, there are a number of social trails or game trails. These aren't marked on backcountry maps, and they're created by either deer walking through, trampling down the underbrush, or people trampling down the underbrush. 
These sorts of trails are pretty obviously not one of the trails that's been constructed by Philmont. They're not on our maps. They're fairly easy to tell. One thing that I think is really incredible about Philmont is that the signage is really good. And if you're going along a trail and don't see some sort of indication that you're still on a Philmont trail, the telltale signs of well-built Philmont trails, then you're probably on a social trail. Now, the signage used to be arrows pointing in a direction with a name on it, telling you where you were headed. They're moving more towards UTM posts, but all the same, you will have indicators of where you are, and those really help with navigation. As Harrison mentioned, there are two different avenues of transportation that are present out of Philmont. Like you mentioned before, there are trails, but there's also roads. We have different types of roads out at the ranch, and the general consensus for all of them is that you don't hike on them unless it's absolutely necessary. There are some portions of the backcountry in which you will have to hike roads. Again, the times in which you'll run into these situations will be when you're getting really far north. The trail network up in the north country is not as extensive as the trail network in the central and the south country. So there will be portions where you will have to hike on roads, but avoid them if able. The main reason for that is that they're hot and they're miserable, and they don't follow the rule that Harrison was mentioning earlier about the grade. You'll have roads that will go straight up a mountain, and it's pretty ridiculous at a 35% grade. That is absolutely ridiculous, and you don't want to be traveling those roads carrying anywhere from 40 to 60 pounds on your back, hiking up in that kind of elevation in that environment. The other reason why we discourage road hiking is because there is a lot of vehicle traffic out on the ranch. You have commissary trucks that are moving supplies to and from backcountry camps and the commissaries. You have infirmary vehicles that there's only one reason why an infirmary vehicle will be out on the road, and that is moving towards any sort of medical emergency. And then you also have your regular vehicle traffic that is also operated by Philmont staff. So you want to stay off of these roads as much as possible, unless it can't be avoided, i.e. when you don't have a trail to hike on. I mentioned the different types of roads. You have your service roads, which are your general roads. These are well-maintained. However, don't be fooled by them again, because they do not follow the traditional law of trails. You also have logging roads and out-of-service roads, which some of the out-of-service roads will not be marked on your map. However, these logging and out-of-service roads are very old. They're not utilized by Philmont vehicles for the same reason that we talked about earlier about overgrowth. You have collapsed foliage. Vehicles will not travel on these roads. However, there's no indication to the Philmont staff as to whether or not crews will be hiking out on those roads. They are not monitored. So do not hike on these roads. You also have your emergency and ATV roads. The only times that these roads are utilized is when there is a medical emergency in the portion of the backcountry that regular vehicles cannot get to. Anywhere from Mount Phillips, Baldy, Black Mountain, you have these types of roads that are present there that are meant for quick and easy access to extract an individual off of a location that is remote to regular service roads. So there are many different kinds of roads. However, the general rule for all of them is to refrain from using them unless it is told by your trip planner to utilize a road while hiking. We thank you for joining us in another episode of Ranger Rendezvous Podcast. We hope that this episode has helped you understand a little bit more about what it looks like in the backcountry and what you can come to expect out in the wilderness at Philmont. We have the capability for you to ask us any questions, and that might be featured in a future episode. If you'd like to ask us a question, please visit anchor.fm slash ranger-rendezvous slash message to leave us a voice recording or click the message button at anchor.fm slash ranger rendezvous to leave us a text message. 
These links are also included in the description of the episode. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you in the next episode.